Hello, Trash Crusaders. Welcome to episode 16 of Save Trash Cinema, the podcast where exploitation and exploration come together. It is I, your humble host, your guide through trash cinema, and your favorite dumpster boy, Cayman Darty. And on today's episode, we're setting ourselves on fire, hunting down some teenagers, and answering the age old question Could George Costanza ever be a teenage heartthrob? When we cover the 1981 slasher traster piece, The Burning. Quick spoiler alert, yeah, he's definitely not a heartthrob. But before we get into that, let me introduce the last person you'd want to give a pair of hedge clippers to. Not because he's a psychopathic killer, mainly because he always tries to make hedge animals. But they always seem to look more like 98 Degrees frontman Nick Lachey. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but the HOAs around here generally frown upon that. My friend and co-host, Patrick Schweiger. It's funny that you say Nick Lachey. If I had looked at the doc ahead of time and known you were making a Nick Lachey joke, I have somewhere in this house muscle arms with Nick Lachey's tattoo on the bicep because one time I went as Nick Lachey for Halloween. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, and for our very special guest host, we bring to you a somewhat familiar voice. He's one half of the dynamic duo behind Switchblade Cinema, the director of the short films Wretch and Portrait, as well as the upcoming feature-length film Kill Your Lover. London's own Kier Seward. Kier, how are you today? I'm good, guys. I'm good. You know, I'm just a man who enjoys simple stories of masked men who like to kill sexy teenagers with power tools. So I'm I'm <laughs> I'm excited to be here. You know, I got my I got my Jason mask necklace on. I got my Candyman T-shirt. I am just I'm ready to go, guys. I'm ready to go. That's beautiful. Well, we're very excited that you're here today. Uh, but before we jump in, let's do a little quick housekeeping. We'd love it if you rate and review the podcast on your podcast app of choice. Don't forget you can be on the show by submitting movie recommendations or by being a guest host by emailing us at SaveTrashCinema at gmail.com or you can DM us on Twitter at SaveTrashCinema or on Instagram at SaveTrashCinema as well. Make sure to check out last week's interview with none other than Gear Seward and his partner in life and crime, Alex Austin. Uh, we will be continuing to release mini-sodes, crossover episodes, and interviews just like that so keep your eyes peeled for some exciting content coming down the pipeline. We also have a Discord server and are dishing out some behind-the-scenes looks at how STC is put together, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, special family movie nights, as well as just a really cool community of Trash Crusaders. So come on over and join us there as well. But enough about that and enough bullshitting around. Let's get on with the overview of The Burning. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. Cried out! I will return! I will have my revenge! The Burning is a 1981 summer camp slasher directed by Tony Mainlom and co-written by himself, Brad Gray, and um, Harvey Weinstein. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> if you're a keen listener, you might remember Tony Mainlom as the director of the First four days of the Rutger Hour-led split second, which we covered a mere couple weeks ago. Brad Gray isn't as well known for his writing, but more of his role as a producer from classics such as the TV series Just Shoot Me, The Sopranos, and The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. What a resume. What a resume. And Harvey Weinstein. 
who is best known for being a 350-pound sack of shit. The less said about that dipshit, the better. Yep, fuck him. However, I do think it's also important that we we point out it's also edited by Jack Shoulder, who made the gayest horror film ever made, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. That is true. Also, Alone that? in the Dark, The Hidden. Like, he's quietly got a pretty decent filmography. The story goes as such. After a prank goes horribly wrong, Cropsey, the sadistic caretaker for Camp Blackwood, is almost burned to death. Five years later and out of the hospital, Cropsey makes his return to the camp, leaving nothing but bloodshed and bodies in his wake as he hunts down one of the boys behind his disfiguration. We're setting records here, Cayman. I think this is the quickest trivia we've ever had on the show. Uh, the concept of this film, which was originally scripted as The Cropsey Maniac, is based on a campfire story told at summer camps in and around New Jersey and upstate New York. The story is still in circulation and is also the basis for the documentary Cropsey from 2009, though this film is not referenced in that documentary at all. Interesting stuff, if you ask me. Interesting. You should check out the, the documentary if you haven't. The documentary is fascinating. Also, just really well done. Now, the film itself stars Brian Matthews from Red Knights and Crime Stopper, Leah Aries from Bloodsport, Hot Child in the City, Oscar award-winning Holly Hunter from The Incredibles and The Piano, as well as Seinfeld's very own Jason Alexander. The film runs for an hour and 31 minutes and has sport currently sports a Rotten Tomatoes score of 80%. Which, and correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, makes this the highest rated film we have ever covered on this podcast. Guys, I only bring the prime cuts with me. That's it. No, no, no toss offs. It's we're only doing the best. Yeah, by a mile. Like, I don't even know if any of them come like 30% close to the burnings. (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes. It's very true. Now, you can currently rent the film for most major outlets, purchase it for relatively cheap on physical or... And you should know this by now. You can stream it on everyone's favorite free with ads platform to be now. Also, incidentally, if you're mm-hmm. in the UK, you can just stream it on Shutter because that's how I watched it. Oh, shit. So, sh- OK, so if you're in the UK for our UK listeners, uh, Shutter. I don't I actually checked on our so, you know, for from America and uh, not there, unfortunately. So the the U.S. we just have landed a free to my ass. Well, well, that's that's always the funny thing too is like especially in the horror world when people start talking about like oh you can watch this on Shutter. Well, sometimes it's not always true in the U.K. But sometimes we got other stuff. So you know it's like it's you know and you got a VPN then you know it doesn't really matter. Ooh, but that's uh, fair. Yeah. That's very Shouldn't fair. have left. Shouldn't have left Great Britain. Well, should have stayed. With- With the overview out of the way, why don't we take some time to discuss some initial thoughts? So we're going to start off because Kier, our our guest host today, was the one that brought the film to us. So we're going to start with you, Kier. Tell us what you think about The Burning and why why are you saving it? Because I know you're saving it. Well, okay. So here's the thing with The Burning, right? It's like because me, as I said in the beginning, I love slasher films. I love the formula. I love the jankiness often of them. I love the simplicity of them. As as Jamie Kennedy said in the original Scream, there's a formula to it. And that's what you appreciate about it. And this is ultimately one of the most formulaic thing, like ones. It, it feels so classic. It's like it starts off with somebody who's horribly wronged. You have a cavalcade. It's, it's set at a summer camp. You have a cavalcade of sexy teenagers. Uh, you have some pointless nudity, a shower scene that is just there for the sake of itself. Uh, you know... Some sex happens. Some people get into a really pointless 
arguments. There's at least a good 40 minutes of this film where it just feels like, is anything going to fucking happen? And then when it does, it's glorious. It comes up with some great original tools to use. Like, I love the use of the shears. And mm. yeah, no, it is just... It, and also, like the thing that I find kind of fascinating about, is especially once you get into this and you get and and you've watched a lot of them, a lot of them are very janky. Like if I watch like The Mutilator or something like that, or you know, um, I don't know, like Doom Asylum, it's like you know, you are almost like amazed anytime there's anything that's borderline competent. Sure. But this film weirdly is like very competently shot and is almost borderline an art film at times like it gets incredibly artsy in its moments especially in like when you get to like the canoe kill bit um and it's also like strangely uh, towards the end almost gets borderline kind of like dreamlike and strange and 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 nonsensical uh like people's geographical locations make no sense and things yeah, just yeah. actions don't match at all and uh i'd like to i like to just believe that really that was all a choice like everything in this movie was intentional and it's great but i actually think that's it i think it is the most classic of those kind of like slasher films in terms of setup in terms of story in terms of conceit and yet, at the same time, I think like it's it's one of the better executed ones of that era. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Uh, Patrick, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you think? What, what did you think going in? Because this, you, uh, Patrick is notoriously is not genuine, generally a fan of horror. Um, and this movie, it can get pretty spooky sometimes. So, Patrick, what well, did you think? I also think? think if you're not a horror fan, like, slasher films are the first thing that everyone looks down on because they are the sure. bottom of the basement-type oh, yeah. horror yeah. films. Yeah. So, I watching the trailer uh, before I walked into this movie, I was scared, admittedly. It's not scared of the movie, scared that I wasn't going to like it. But, uh, you know, I won't spoil my ending thoughts, but I had a great time with it. Like, I... I um, it very much I, I got kind of what I expected in, in that it was a very formulaic by the book slasher movie uh, in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, so, yeah, that was that was my initial. And then, yeah, w when I I'm doing like I'm pulling it up on Tubi, I'm just doing some very, very basic research. And I see Holly Hunter's in this movie. Jason Alexander's in this movie. A guy, Ned Eisenberg's in this movie, who he's just like a character actor in a lot of TV. Like, this is what a weird cast for so many people to get their starts. But yeah, overall, a fan. Yeah, I, I yeah, that's it is a shocking one for me. This I'm going to I'm going to blow some minds here when I say this, but I actually like the burning more than Friday the 13th. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I would agree with you on that one. That's that's not hard, especially the original Friday the 13th. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Which I'm... A lot of people like they, they look a lot of people look at the burning and are like, oh, well, this is just a rip off of Friday the 13th. But funnily enough, the movie was actually written before Friday the 13th came out. So a lot of these like by the books, things like this, they were already doing it before this became the next thing. And so for me, like, I look at this very fondly, like it does take time to set up, but honestly, I enjoyed the setup because they, they uh, sprinkle in little bits of suspense in the beginning of the movie. So you get a little bit here and there and you get like, okay, when's shit going to go down? And so you're just kind of on your edge of your seat. And then when it hits, 
it is a roller coaster ride till the time the movie rolls credits. And so I absolutely love this movie and I'm very excited that we're doing it for the show. Cause I feel like it is an underappreciated gem, but enough about my thoughts. Why don't we go ahead and get the show on the road? The burning everyone. This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. What happened one summer five years ago is about to happen again. And again. And again. The Burning. Camp Blackfoot. A group of boys are planning a prank on Cropsy, the groundskeeper. One of the boys sneaks into Cropsy's uh, cabin while he's asleep. He sits down a box on the table next to the bed and lights something inside of the box. Back outside of the cabin, the group of boys start banging on the glass loudly enough to wake the man. After being startled awake, Cropsy looks up to see a decaying human head with candles lit inside of the empty eye sockets. That hu- Okay, first, my first question here. Where the fuck did you find this head? I, I know... I- this definitely what? this falls into my whole remit of this is this is an art film. This is about expression beyond just simple logic here. You know, it's 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 also like it's that weird thing where I'm also kind of fascinated by how like teenagers just used to be like unremittent assholes in movies. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like you would never see that now. Like a teenager would never just like show up and just like harass some poor you know, you're possibly mentally not completely there, drunkard, you know, middle-aged man who, like, lives in some shitty shack in a, in a summer camp. Now now there would be all sorts of things called into question. But no, but basically back in the day, you know, teenagers could just be assholes. I just wanted to, like, where did you find the head? Because that's not just, like, you, someone just made, like, they just found, like, a prop head at, like, their high school and their science classroom. They just popped it off before going to summer break. Like, this is, like, it's got maggots decaying flesh like they production designed the hell out of that you know oh, yeah. just as this is a bunch of like teenage kids they you know maybe one of them you know their dad worked for you know a studio somewhere and he they just like had all of the contacts to really go in and just really make this head work you know it it, it almost looks like it was created by tom savini oh shockingly enough it, <laughs> we'll get to that in a panic cropsy knocks over the head onto his bed setting it ablaze alongside himself in the entire cabin. He manages to escape the cabin, but not before being engulfed in flames. Cropsy then tumbles down the embankment in front of his cabin and falls into the lake. I know their intention wasn't to burn this man alive, but at this point, I'm like, I am totally on this guy's side. Like, I don't know. I don't care what happens. I gotta say, Ray, I feel like Cropsy... I mean, if I have like a candle that's next to my bed, I feel like I have to do some work to like knock that onto my bed sure. and get lit on fire. I mean, also, 
he like he gets lit up really quickly. I mean, do you think that man just like went to bed? He was drinking something, just got spilled all over him because there looks like s- something had to really ignite there. So, I mean, this is the 80s and we all know in the 80s, everyone's clothes were made of gasoline. A simple space heater would set anyone aflame. In the really 80s. good point. Well, it's just like how like every car is just rigged to explode on impact. You know, every human body is rigged to just be engulfed by flame as soon as it's touched by any form of heat. I also love just this is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, like the production design of this film is incredible. 99% of the time. The one time it's not is in this one scene. So he busts out the door and you can see he's wearing like the like the uh, baklava. Uh, like the skull cap that you would use during like a, a scene like that when you get set on fire. Like you can see he's got the gloves on. He's got everything. Like he's got the cap on. Like he is set on fire, obviously. But he, you can tell it's like this is a completely different human being who is inside of that cabin to the person who walked out of the cabin. And well, part of me has a mythos that Cropsey died in there and this dude was just under the bed. Also, like, can I just say Cropsey has a really odd face even before he gets oh like, yeah it's like it's like alex just like my, when she was because she was watching it with me she just kind of went like is that his actual nose or did they like makeup design that it's he is not an attractive dude i gotta feel for him i'd really do i think he was maybe in another uh prank gone wrong before this movie and this is we just didn't get that backstory. You know, that was planned, he, but it didn't happen. He he looks like a less buff version of Sloth from Goonies. Is, is can I also just say too? Is this the point? Because this is the thing that I experienced the first time I watched the burning, where I was like, "This is all like it feels like you guys are trying way harder than I expected you to be." Like like, do you know what this movie is? You don't need to be working this hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. One week later, Saint Catherine's Hospital. A doctor and an orderly are walking, chatting it up inside the hospital. The orderly tells the doctor that he has to see the burnt body of Cropsy. The orderly pulls the curtain back and is immediately grabbed by the charred arm of Cropsy. Title card, The Burning. There it is. So some trivia, Tom Savini, previously mentioned, aforementioned on this episode, uh, turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 to work on this film. That was a good now, call. There was, I was, so when I was getting, I was actually working on some artwork for the interview episode. I was doing a little adjustments. And so I've got the movie on the background. I'm like, okay, let me pop on the special features. There's like a Tom Savini interview where he talks about the movie. And it actually comes up when he mentions this. And the whole reason he turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 was because he said, this is fucking stupid. Jason's dead in the movie. Like, how the fuck are you? And he says, he's like, how the fuck are you going to make a part two if, and you're bringing back Jason, who's a little boy, like two years after the events of part one. Now, this time he's a grotesque monster. Like, this makes no sense to me. I want no part of it. <laughs> little See, did what, he what know. What Tom Savini has done there, though, is he's tapped into the mad genius that is Friday the 13th, where yeah. from movie to movie, it makes no sense. But that's part of the fun of it. It's It's like... It's it's the most malleable and nonsensical franchise ever. Like it's like no, now he's a zombie. Now he's in space. Now, yeah, sure, yeah. why not? I will go with you. Whatever, <laughs> slap Friday the Thirteenth on it. I'll come along with you as long as he's not a mind controlling leech that jumps from body to body. Sure. Other than that, I'm down. Yeah, I mean, th- little did Tom know that this was going to be number two of a dozen movies over the next twenty right. years. 
And I will definitely say, if you gave me the option, watch Friday the 13th Part 2 or watch The Burning, I'm going to watch The Burning. So, you know, I, I think he made the right move because, you know, I don't need to see overly agile Jason in a burlap sack. As much as I think that's probably one of my favorite final girls in the entire uh, Friday the 13th franchise and the, the final 30 minutes is pretty solid. Like most of, I am not down for Jason in that movie. I agree. We cut back to the hospital five years later. We overhear the voices of doctors saying that returning to a normal life will be hard. There's nothing more they can do to help and that Cropsy needs to learn to forgive the kids that burned him. We next, and like, yeah. He, this man was healing for five years in a hospital? Dude, he was, did you see that arm, bro? Yes. Burned to a crisp. Did you see five that Five years? True. I mean, I want to say the orderly in the scene, he goes, makes a comment. He's like, bro, like, hey, man, you should check this body out. He looks like a crispy ass Whopper or Big Mac. And he's like, this is topical. I also appreciate that an orderly is insulting a patient. <laughs> I just, that I just also like fascinated by like how like the orderly is negging the doctor. Like, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. they also, there's like a one off little comment where it makes it seem like the doctor is like doing his clinicals and like, he's not officially a doctor yet. And I'm like, how this doctor is like 80 years old. There is no way this dude just got out of college. Like he is fully like toilet bowl. His hair is just strands of hair, just strands at, up top. And look, I'm 31 and sure I'm going bald, but like that guy is definitely not out of college. And that guy's definitely way older than someone who would be like doing their clinicals. But you know what? Everybody's Maybe he was different, Cayman. Everybody's different. I, you know, some people go bald very early. That's all I'm saying. I didn't think this was a discriminatory podcast. I, I didn't I either. I was coming on to have a nice civil chat with Look, people I, who, hey. you know, didn't discriminate against people. I, I didn't it. either. <laughs> this is news to me. I'm not discriminating against the guy. I'm just saying that the dude, there's no, you know what? We're moving on. It's we're fine. moving on. We, we, can, we can move on. <laughs> we next see a streetwalker and her John. She invites him into her apartment. She begins to undress and the creepy and mysterious figure walks in. She starts to panic as he approaches. He begins to strangle her and then stabs her in the stomach with a pair of scissors. So, I, I have two, two thoughts on this just quickly. One, solid kill. I, I, yeah. I approve. Um, but two, did this not feel like a real, like a, like a last minute addition that was like, nobody dies in this movie for way too long. We just need yeah. him to kill some. And it's like, yeah. I like the idea that they just sat around and go, what could he do? He could just kill a hooker. You know, that's, we'll just stick a hooker death in there. Yeah. That has nothing, no bearing on the rest of it. And then at least he's murdered somebody. Yeah. When I was watching the first note I took was what did she do? Like, why, why is she caught in this? She had nothing to do with the campfire. You know, I will give Cropsy credit though. He does not discriminate on who he kills. I, I also, yeah. I would like to give the movie credit too for having an, a woman who looked like an accurate hooker. Like it wasn't <laughs> like a, it wasn't like they just cast some model and like, Ooh, I'm a streetwalker. I'm like, no, she did. If you had told me she was actually like a seventies, New York streetwalker, like somebody from the Deuce, I would totally buy it. Oh, hundred yeah, percent, for sure, hundred percent. Um, so, so this is actually this piece of trivia is very interesting for me because I was wondering this around this point in the movie was so to create Cropsey's distorted POV shots, the cinematographer actually rubbed Vaseline on the outside mm -hmm. edges of the camera lens, just like 
it's it's one of those things where like you could have easily not done that. Oh yeah, you could have just and that goes to show, like you said earlier, Kier, like these these guys when they made this movie were like, no, we're doing this and we're going a hundred and ten percent. Like we're going to try to make this good. And like well, those the thing little is, like, extra you, things, you watch right. like Friday the Thirteenth, and you can very much tell it's like, oh, Halloween hit big. We could make another thing. That's a that's a slasher killer thing. But this one really does feel like the people behind this are going like, yeah, you know, someday we are going to, uh, you know, uh, try and manipulate the industry into um, giving us Oscars and, uh, you know, use that power to then um, try to get women back to hotel rooms. Yeah. We cut to a summer camp. A softball game is being played. A misthrow leads one of the girls into the woods to retrieve it. Lurking in the woods is the man from before. Except this time, he's upgraded his scissors to hedge clippers. Before he can stab the girl, she finds the baseball and runs back to the game. And, like, I gotta respect the creative choice that this man is named Cropsy and his tool of murder is garden shears. It could have been an axe. It could have been... I, I, I appreciate that this is... I never would have expected garden shears to be the tool in this movie. I think more slasher films, like everyone goes with like Michael Myers has his knife and Freddie has his finger claws and Jason has his machete. And, I, you know, those have become synonymous. So like modern slasher films, a lot of times fall in the same trap. You Scream does the same thing where they use the the, the butcher's knife and or I guess not even something really a butcher's knife, it's just a knife. Um, but like hedge clippers. That's like one thing that you would never think would be a deadly object in someone's hands. And then you see this movie and you're like, fuck gardeners. Don't know. I will do my own lawn because one day I'll piss you guys off. You'll see me naked through a window and you're gonna like this grotesque body. I you you have that you have wronged me. I should not have seen this. And then they'll kill me with hedge clippers. Well, no, you're, you're totally right. After Black Christmas, I can never look at a, a glass unicorn ever again. <laughs> oh, that is very fair that's very fair what would what would your uh your weapon of choice be if you were to be a mass murdering uh revenge psychopath bent on killing some camp counselors i feel like i should have like a i feel like i should have an answer like ready for this i mean i i always thought the the was you know the sort of i guess it's like a it's like a like one of those saws that they use on like concrete and stuff like that when um in um high tension that was always like the one that i thought was like because that to me looks even more brutal than yeah. the chainsaw in sure. Texas Chainsaw. It's like that thing just looks so violent. You know, I, I the only problem I think is like it might be hard to wield that. Mm. Like, and that's yeah. the thing is like, do you do you go for like scare factor? Or you do, do you go for practicality? I mean, yeah. I'm you know, again, I'm also a fan of the the drill from um from um Slumber Party uh, Massacre. Party Massacre. Yeah. Also, the That's really, solid. really long drill from Body Double that makes no Ooh. sense, but, you know, is fantastic. I, I like just a hammer. Mm. Like, there's hammer? something about just a hammer. And you see it from time to time in horror films where, like, someone will bust out a hammer. And, like, there's just something so visceral about, like, just, just whacking someone over the head with a hammer that just fucks with me on, like, a sure. deep level. Have also, you guys ever everyone seen, has a hammer. Have you guys ever seen Killer Workout? Mm-mm. Um. Yes, actually, I did. Uh, that um, is one where the killer kills people with uh, a really large safety pin, and it is one of the yes. dumbest, yeah, tools ever used in a slasher movie. That's awesome. 
Yes, there. I want to say there's like one scene in particular in that film where they like killed. It was like the first time I ever saw someone get killed inside of a, a tanning bed. Yeah, and then it became like a big thing in Final Fantasy or Final Fantasy Final, Final Destination. Fantasy. Yeah, yeah, Final Destination later. But like that scene when they do it there. Also, once again, never go back inside of a gym. That's why my guardians, mm-hmm. when they see me naked, are like, "We have to kill you. You can't exist." Yeah, disgusting humans. See, I'm I'm also a fan. I uh, see one of the things I love about Candyman is Candyman has the hook that's embedded mm. into. See, I like the idea too of a killer that has his weapon embedded into as them. part of him. Yeah, 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 that's fair. That's fair. A girl is walking to the outdoor showers. She undresses and gets into the shower. She hears a door creaking. No, she no, no, no. Op- sorry, sorry, sorry. You you have to like do it properly. She gets in the shower. She soaps up her hair. She mm. keeps soaping up her hair. She's there for a while. It, you know, we're going to be in that shower a while the camera time. zooms out very slowly for a while. You get to yeah. that shower, we're there. Yeah. Part of me just feels bad for that actress. Because I'm like, I really don't know if you enjoyed this scene very much. Well, it's one of those ones where I kind of like looked her up. I was kind of like, I want to like know that she then had like a 10 year career on like the young and the restless or something or like that. Cause that's the thing sometimes with like these horror movies, then you sort of like, Oh, okay. Like she went on like and worked on a network TV show for like 10 years. Good for her. She yeah. probably made a lot of money. I yeah. didn't really see any evidence of what she did after. No, this. unfortunately. Yeah. She opens the curtain and we hear an off off screen scream. Come to find out Alfred, one of the boys at the camp, was spying on the girl in the shower. He gets accosted by some of the counselors, and one of the male counselors, Todd, says he'll straighten him out. And he doesn't. It annoys me. No. It's like, this guy doesn't get his comeuppance in any form or fashion. It's like, it's almost weirdly like the film was written by a sex pest who felt like sex pests should get away with shit. (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah, that's true. There were mo- no, many just, moments. Just keep reading it back, just 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 to make it worse and worse. Yeah, there, there, yeah, yeah, and that's what's such like a bummer. Like, and we're Patrick and I were talking about this beforehand. He texted me. He's like, "I'm assuming you already know this," but I'm like, "Yes, I do." And here's the thing, and I feel the same way about stuff like House of Cards or something like uh, like Pearl Harbor, right? Where it's like. You know, you you take a moment where you kind of have to just take a step back and be like, there was so many people who worked on this movie. Like, one person can't ruin it. And if you let that person ruin this art, like, I get why you would be like, fuck this, I'm not doing it. But, like, you're discrediting and disservicing the people who, like, actually put the hard work in to be part of it. And I do think it's 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 one of those things you got to take it on a case by case basis a yeah. lot of the times of what and it, it comes down a lot to your own personal feelings of what you feel is 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 right and I I you know I look at this and ultimately like this film is about so much more than you know one asshole who worked yeah. on it I mean I think it's interesting I suppose in terms of the history of Hollywood because Miramax had such a big effect on Hollywood over the next like twenty years but yeah and this is the first Miramax film really. You know, so it's it's a it's it's fascinating from that standpoint. Um, but you know, obviously, just you know, fuck Harvey Weinstein. He's a sack of shit, and he was a yeah. sack of shit even before we knew all this. We get a quick exposition dump setting up Todd as one of the boys who played the prank on Cropsy five years ago. Alfred then gets his balls busted by Glazer, the street tough at the camp. Out on the lake, Alfred is getting hassled by some of the other boys for not being able to swim. Glazer sneaks up behind him and pushes him into the water. And Jason Alexander saves him from drowning. Not the George Costanza we deserve, 
but the one we need. I, I feel like this is like a point that I actually need to bring up a question that I had all through this movie, which is who are the counselors and who are the kids? It's Correct. so baffling to me where the line is because like occasionally you see some kids that look slightly younger, but at least like 14 or 15 and like some of them, like even like Fisher Stevens, I'm like, is he a counselor? Is he a camper? I don't, I, I, I can't figure out where the lines are. I had the exact same scenario where toward the end of the movie, I had this moment like, wait a second, did any of these people have anything to do with the burning at the beginning? And then I realized like what you just shared, like one of them was there. But so then I was confused the whole time. Like, are these counselors, are these like attendees of the camp? It's a little unclear, but you know, it pisses me off, right? It pisses me off about Alfred in particular, because this motherfucker has a five o'clock shadow. And like the best I can do is this disgust ash. And that's like the only facial. I'm 31 years old. I can't grow any facial hair whatsoever. And then this kid, like, you know, he's shaving before every scene. And I'm like, you're yeah, trying to tell me it's like 13. You got a feel for Alfred because Brian Backer, like early 80s, was like the lamest man of the early 80s. Like this and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it was like Hollywood was just like, dude, you suck. <laughs> yes. 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 To get revenge on Glazer, they shoot him with a BB gun. They then moon him. And I'm pretty sure we just saw George Costanza's ass. We definitely do- saw a couple assholes right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the Fisher Fisher Stevens, too. This like bony little ass. Like it was like, I felt like there was some brown eye just like just, oh, just staring yeah. back at me for at least a flash. You could you could dive straight into his soul from the angle that we get in the movie. <laughs> just bad. We cut tonight. Outside of the boys' cabin, someone is lurking around. The person then approaches the window and Alfred catches a glimpse. Todd shows back up and tells everyone to head to dinner. At the mess hall, Glazer tries to fuck with Costanza, and the camp supervisor sets the stage for the remainder of the movie by explaining that the older kids are going on a three-day canoe trip to Devil's Creek. One of the boys forgot his vitamin E and heads back to the cabin to retrieve it. So here's my question to both of you. If you're a camp and you're like, hey, we're going to let you all these kids go, because obviously the camp counselors are probably like 18, 19, maybe 20 years old. Um, and you're going to take a bunch of kids with you. One, on a three-day trip with no additional supervision outside of just these like college-age kids. And two, why the hell would you send them to a place called Devil's Creek? Like that's just, You're just asking for bad news at that point. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like I can answer this from the standpoint that I actually was a camp counselor. Um at a a sort of very Jewish summer camp in Pennsylvania. I'm not Jewish, which all the kids found very, because like all the kids were Jewish. So they found it very weird that I, a non-Jewish person, was their camp counselor. Um, But the, um, but yeah, I did actually take kids on a canoeing trip um, where I was one of the the, the counselors. And it was like, basically, this was again, where I started to get really confused who were the counselors and who were the kids. Because like, I, it's like that thing of like, you know, it was one of us in a canoe with usually two or three of the kids. And like, it was a day trip. Like we didn't actually like go camping. Like basically we just went down the river and then uh, somebody picked us up at the other end and drove us back to the camp. But it was this kind of weird thing where I'm looking at all these people in the canoes. I'm like, that looks like there's three counselors in one. And then there's looks like there's one counselor and maybe two people who could be campers. But this was just like, <laughs> I, I swear the amount of time I spent trying to like chart it. It was almost like Charlie 
in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he's got like the map out. And I'm just going like, okay, this one could presumably be a counselor. This one has to be a kid. But like, how how, how mm-hmm. is this all working? It was just, it got, it, it really started to bug me at a certain point. There, yeah, there's yeah. also a point where Jason Alexander in a scene in the mess hall where he like sits down and he's like, hey girls. And all of them look at him. And he's like, are you guys prepared for the trip? Do you need some spermicide? And I'm like, are you fucking these kids? Like, is Jason, who, like, Jason Alexander's counselor, right? Yes. Well, I'm assuming. I hope so. He's the I one that know. brought the kids pornography at one point as well. So Okay, then he, he well. But is Glazer then? Is Glazer a kid? I think he's also a camp counselor. I, also, who would allow this, this shithead to be a camp counselor? Like, you just look at him. You immediately look at him. You're like, you're bad news, buddy. I don't want you here. Like... <laughs> Maybe this is all part of my thesis about how this is a this is an art film, and maybe it's trying to say something about the nature of childhood and where, where you know whether we are truly ever grown up or whether exactly. we are you know it, it, adolescence is a perpetual state you know by of really, humanity or something yeah. I don't know but by yeah, really like, fogging who who's the counselor who's the kid I think you're onto something. The boy makes it back to the cabin, but the lights aren't working. So he grabs his flashlight and snags his vitamins as a mysterious figure looms in the doorway. Don't worry, though. It's just Todd. The next morning, the older kids make it make the trek to Devil's Creek in their canoes. Everyone is sitting around a campfire, and Todd tells the, the tale of Cropsy and, a, and how the Camp Blackfoot burnt down in his wake. Apparently, Cropsy was a real piece of shit, and Todd embellishes the story, and right as the punchline comes, someone jumps out in a mask with a knife, and the prank comes full circle once more. Also, can we also point out too? So this is within the logic of what's going on here. Todd is basically like, so I murdered a guy five years ago, or almost murdered a guy five years ago, and now it's already an urban legend that I'm just telling to you as a joke, and have my friend dress up as the man I almost murdered to scare you. You know what? Honestly, I think Todd's got moxie. Okay. <laughs> Like, I think Todd might be more of a piece of shit than we think he is. I oh, think yeah. so. No, I still side with Cropsy. Even after the movie's done, I'm like, man, you got fucked, buddy. Like, I'd be pissed as shit if you burnt me and I looked like that. I mean, I looked bad before, but I looked somehow even worse later. Like, Also, there's something about Todd and Michelle that they just look like suburban Republicans. Mm. They look Correct. like they would be in a really nice, you know, sort of like country house out in the suburbs um, and they would have just kind of like, I don't know, probably not Trump voters, but they definitely would have like voted for, they, they definitely would have voted for Bush. Oh, yeah, they definitely really, would have voted for Really Bush. active on the Facebook communities. Like where oh, yeah. were they on January 6th? Hard to say. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of question marks here. They're at the, they, they got the minivan. They're, yeah. they're driving yeah. the kids to soccer practice, you know, every weekend. And then also passing out flyers, um, letting <laughs> them know that uh, your freedoms are at risk. Exactly. Uh, some trivia for that scene. Uh, apparently, most of the scenes in the woods were shot day for night. The only exception are the campfire scenes, which were actually shot at night. Um, so, Kier, I have a question for you specifically. You, so you direct films. Now, a lot of the movies that you do, um, they're more inside, indoors, close quarters. But like, kind of, if you're shooting at night, which I'm assuming you've done before, like how does how does that affect a shoot in terms of like hey we've got lighting equipment we've got stuff set up like how does that work exactly well it's it's very complicated especially if you are say shooting in the woods because 
the woods, like in theory, like when you're trying to light exteriors, you're trying to think of what is the the logical purpose of the light. Where is the light coming from? A lot of people, they will get just like a giant light that kind of like is essentially supposed to echo moonlight and they'll have mm. like some smoke roll through it. And, you know, they'll kind of come out with little ways of then like getting little reflections off of water or doing things that kind of like give it some kind of boost. You know, it's like if you were watching, say, something with like, I mean, I always thought, think of it very much as like what, True Blood used to do all the time, you know, because they had a lot of like shots that were in and well, you're kind of sitting there and you're going like, it makes no sense that it would be this lit. Yeah. But um, a production like this is not going to have the generators or the power to do that. So it makes sense that I mean, actually, the funny thing is you say that and I thought the day for night was really poor in this like it wasn't even like this just looked like they were filming like it at dusk or something yeah. like that. It yeah. was just kind of a little bit dim. I mean, I, you could very much tell it was not night, but like, you know, something like, I mean, the, the, the you know, the, the, the people that did it amazingly was uh, John Seal on Mad Max Fury Road, where they just had that mm. incredible sequence that's day for night. That's, um, that's just pure blue, but day for night is kind of also like one of those things that every film student thinks they can do and they can't. Um, and the amount of times you just watch like a horrible scene. Cause the other thing that you have to do then is you have to correct for the shadows. So in theory, you shoot day for night by shoot filming at midday when the shadows are going to be that they're shortest mm -hmm. because the, the sun is highest in the sky. And then it means that you can mimic the sort of more even light of the night as much as you can. But most people don't realize that and huh. you're kind of sitting there going like why is the night filled with shadows and all sorts of stuff but yeah i mean Weird. it's it's tricky to film at night i mean cities you have all sorts of ways that you can boost lights and stuff like that to kind of like get around it but in the woods it's because in theory if you've ever been in the woods at night you can't see anything oh That's yeah no it's black. It's, yeah. there's no actual light there so you know, it's one of the reasons why it always feels a bit funny when you're watching a film and people are walking around in the woods and they can see everything perfectly and everything looks lit. But, you know, I was like um, uh, with the cinematographer, his name I'm blanking on, but the cinematographer for um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, like somebody uh, posted this, um, uh, these pictures, of the battles of Helm's Deep. Um, and obviously that's all takes place at night, but it's really lit, looks really yeah. blue, looks really like, you know, visually gorgeous but it's a very heavily lit scene and he goes where's the light coming from and then the cinematographer whose name i wish i hadn't blanked on he uh he 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 tweeted the back and went same place the music is coming from <laughs> and i think andrew, that's andrew film, leslie according to necessarily Google. supposed to be reality so it's you know who cares in the end but yeah you're right filming at night is very very difficult especially in an area like the woods so yeah, i remember why they would film day for night and then of course if they're, you're around the campfire you have a fire so you have a natural light source so it makes sense why you would then film that at night plus also night shoots are just harder and um also crew get paid overtime a lot of time or get paid double you know for night shoots so it can be more expensive for productions so it just yeah it, it just depends yeah i i did a night shoot one time um when i was younger i worked on teen wolf the mtv show and it was the first set i'd ever been on and uh there was this massive light in the woods. And I'm like, why is there a huge light here? But we're in the woods. Like, that's the moon. It's like, oh, there you go. That's the moon. That makes you know, sense. I always say that the STC show is edutainment. And I think we just learned some some folks today. I learned. Oh, sure. Least, so, you know, there's that. All right. Two of the camp counselors sneak off for a little skinny dipping action. The male counselor doesn't appreciate the rules of consent. So the girl hightails it back to her clothes, which 
unsurprisingly, are missing. Which I 100% want to say that this scene was only written by Harvey Weinstein. I mean, like, the thing is, like, Karen gets fucking done so dirty in this movie. Because it's like, totally. first, first time you meet Karen, it is just a sh- close-up shot of her ass. It is just yes. men ogling her ass. And she seems like a very nice, very sweet, very, you know, tame lady. And she gets coerced. And, you know, it's like that thing of like, if you're the kind of a good girl, sometimes you want to feel like you've you've done something, you're, you're, you're doing something a bit edgy, a bit crazy. And, you know, I mean, you know, we've all gone skinny dipping at summer camp, at least, you know, some of us have. Um, and and you know and 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 you know so she's she's out there she's like she's pushing the boat out and then this dude who i have to say right this is like this is definitely like the sexy uh sort of like womanizer cast by dudes where i'm like i'm like no woman signed off on this man being the sexy womanizer in this correct i don't know what woman finds this man irresistible um and then, of course, like, she also, she gets even more gratuitously than Sally, just, like, the most kind of, like, full frontal, we can see all the tan lines, everything. And you just kind of feel like Karen deserves her moment where she gets one back in some kind of a way. And then, no, she gets killed horribly for all of it. She gets she gets shit on throughout the movie, and then she just gets horribly murdered. And also, not only that, she didn't even... Fuck him. It's not even like she wasn't still a virgin. She got fucking killed anyway. It's just, yeah. Just it's a shame. Her. That's what I'm saying. Speaking of such, she follows the trail of clothes in the woods, but is soon attacked by the hedge clipper wielding maniac, leaving her with her throat sliced open and dead. The next morning, the male counselor is woken up by Todd and he gets his ass chewed out because the female counselor is missing. He pleads his case, but is caught off when two of the campers yell out that the canoes are missing. Todd then organizes a search party for the canoes, and the entire party splits up to go look for them. Out in the woods, Glazer and Sally, the female counselor from the showers, gets a little hot and heavy. Don't worry, they aren't alone, since Alfred is watching. Once again, Alfred, I know, I know, dude's a pervert. Like, he's a perv. I kept waiting for, like, this point where, like, suddenly they were going to have, like, some reveal where it turns out, like, Alfred had some reason why <laughs> he was, like, perving on Sally. He's like, I don't know. And so, I mean, I would have taken, like, some kind of, like, sleepaway camp crazy, like, twist where it turned out he was her long-lost brother who was actually Ooh, just yeah. trying to protect her from this thing. Or it was, like, it was like, I was ready for something. And then the movie's like, oh, no, no, he's just a perv. It's, he's just a perv. He's just a perv, and he's not going to get a comeuppance for it. Like he, the wrong, he, nobody gets their comeuppances in this movie. He tells Todd earlier, he's like, "Yeah, I was only doing that to scare Sally so I could get back at Glazer, since Glazer is hitting on her." And it's like, "No, nah, dude, that is not an excuse." I, I like just that our, our options here are either uh, pervy Alfred, or you know, just the most like like glazer who feels like he's straight out of like stand by me he's like a 50 yeah. stephen king teenage villain yeah like probably if he wasn't just murdered in five seconds he never would have treated a woman right the rest of his life but, but you know but sally's down for it see again i'm just yeah. kind of like the the, the sure. casting of like what women find attractive in this movie is is, is pretty funny Back on the river, Todd has crafted a makeshift raft in what seems like two hours of time. 
and a group of counselors and kids attempt to head back to the camp to tell the supervisor about the situation. The group on the raft spot one of the missing canoes and paddle towards it. Upon approaching the canoe, the crazed maniac jumps out of the canoe and proceeds to murder all of the kids on the raft. We lose fingers, we get brain matter flying, and ultimately, a nasty scene of carnage. See, see, this is this is the thing I really want to know. Like, Patrick, like, like you've never seen this movie. You didn't know anything nope. about this movie. What was this sequence like for you? So from a artistic standpoint, I thought this was really like a really cool creative shot. I love the fact that he was like waiting in the in the canoe. And I just really liked the way that the shot was crafted. Uh, I said, oh, God, about six times in the shot because I kept expecting the scene to be done. And then the top of the girl's head was sliced open or uh, then they go through the throat. I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. my God, this just keeps getting so much worse. Dude, this scene uh, is but it was a cool so scene. fucking wild. Yeah, Absolutely. Cause like the crazy thing is like, cause this scene was spoiled for me really? because I watched um, the Friday, the 13th uh, documentary uh, crystal Lake memories. And so they, they show it in the um, where they're talking about uh, Tom Savini, not um, coming back for the burning. So they're not coming back for Friday the 13th part because he's doing the burning. And I think that was it. Unless it was, I saw it was, it was definitely in a documentary that I saw this spoiled for me. So the problem was I was literally, it was the thing that made me want to watch the movie. Oh, so cool. I then spent the entire movie waiting for that sequence to happen. So yeah. it was just like really interesting to know what it would be like. Cause I, I, I've always said like, my dream is I would love to travel back to like 1979 and like be able to watch alien, not knowing oh, anything yeah. Yeah. about what the xenomorph looked like like that it had acid for blood that the chest burster was going to happen just like just i would love to be have been able to experience that movie cold with no cultural knowledge yeah but it's like i was kind of thinking that with this i w i really wish i could have watched the burning with no idea that he was about to pop out of that canoe and just have like uh, an absolute like killer frenzy because, I mean, it really goes from zero to 60 here. Like, it, oh, th yeah. there's been some, obviously, there's been some kills at this point. But this kind of like what you mentioned in, in the opening uh, thoughts here was like, a while, for a while, this movie's like, is something going to happen? Like, no shade, no disrespect, but like, we're like an hour in and I'm Well, that's part that... of that's part of the whole thing of watching a slasher sure. movie. You have to spend at least about 50 minutes at, the, at being really bored by some very non-interesting sure. drama. So some trivia with this scene. Uh, the film was one of the first movies to ever land on the UK's video nasties list, specifically because of the infamous Raft Massacre, which I need more information about what the video nasties are. Um, okay, so basically the video nasties, it was kind of this era where essentially you had this woman, Mary Whitehouse, um, and this whole kind of like organization that was really... Uh, obsessed with this idea that children were consuming all of these horror films because essentially VHSs came in and they were essentially unregulated. So you had all these video stores popped up and because initially when um, films were being distributed, a lot of the bigger titles, the studios wouldn't put them out into video stores. So uh, a lot of the stuff that went was cheaper stuff, horror movies, porn things that kind of like people would like take back and watch in the like shame in their own private homes. So there was this sudden panic because you had all of these unregulated movies with, you know, disturbing content that were potentially being seen by children. So um, there was essentially this whole, um, there was essentially this list that was made 
that was films that needed to be banned um, because of you know content that was absolutely atrocious. Now, some some of these films were very uh, were, were things like Last House on the Left or um, uh, The Evil Dead was one of the original video nasties. But there's also like there's some some of them are just really bad. But like some of them are like you know stuff like uh, The Witch Who Came from the Sea. It's actually kind of like a really interesting kind of art movie. You have um, uh, Possession, which is of course like, uh, you know, an art movie. Um, and it, it's really kind of interesting because ultimately this was a kind of moral panic that wasn't really based on any real legitimate fact. And one of the things that was really interesting was that uh, some of the basis was them going into these schools and saying to these kids, oh, have you seen this movie? Have you seen this movie? And the kids would of course be like, yeah, no, I've seen that. It's great. It's the one where like, uh, I don't know, like a, a vampire like eats the brains and stuff like that. And they're kind of like, oh, they've been watching these movies, it's, it's horrible. But then they did a counter, huh. like years later, they did a counter um, study where they went in with fake titles and they said to these kids, have you seen these? And the kids were like, yeah, no, of course I've seen it because the kids hadn't seen it. They just kind of yeah. like wanted to sound cool and sound interesting. So yeah, but it was this whole kind of moral panic era. Mm. Um, and uh, my sort, like I wouldn't call her a friend, I know her, um, you know, we're, we're running the same circles, but um, uh, Prano Bailey Bond, she made a film recently called Censor that's kind of based in that era. Um, and so, yeah, kind of like, so yeah, that's kind of like, it's it's very much a kind of, um, it's a big thing here. It's a big cultural thing here. In fact, on my shelf right now, I have both uh, the box of the band one and two, which are both collections of video nasties. That's um, so cool. And yeah, they're, they're you know, it's a weird, interesting era of, um, of uh, British cinema. But um, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's my overview, I guess. So to piggyback off of what you just said, so some homework for the audience. If you have a Shutter subscription or you don't mind paying a little money to rent it and or buy a copy, I highly, highly, highly recommend The Censor. It is such a good fucking movie. And it really does, like you really get... Um, maybe not more of an insight on the video nasties, but you do get like, there is a lot of history that gets played into it. And also the movie is just really fucking cool. Very neon lit, like uh, kind of gr very grindhouse. It's very, a very grindhouse movie for modern cool. day and definitely recommend anyone out there who's interested, check it out. It's fucking incredible. Basically the only movie I ever know knew that has a, a, a reference to nightmares in a damaged brain, which I felt very, uh, <laughs> you know, one of those things where you feel very cool when you're like, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get that. <laughs> well, back in the woods, Glazer and Sally are scrogging. Glazer is apparently a poor lay and Sally is left disappointed, but willing to let Glazer go for a second round. Glazer opting to try and be a cool dude for a change, heads off to get matches and wood to build them a fire. This is a poor idea since Sally is now left alone and Edward Hedgeclipper hands deals her a deadly blow. Glazer returns with a sneaky Alfred falling right behind him. When he returns, he's immediately impaled by Cropsey's hedge clippers. What is scrogging? That is never not a term that? I've ever heard before. You never heard scrogging? It's when two scrogging, bro. Really? Yeah, it's, I don't know if you know this, but in Britain, that's actually the phrase that's used quite often. 
um, I mean, snogging. Just like Jay, you can't get away with this like you did on the split second one. Like, I'm here. I live I in this. I can't do it. I can't do it twice. I know I I don't can... sound like it, but I live in this country, so I'm <laughs> I'm calling bullshit on that one. Thank you, thank you, Kier. Uh Some some trivia uh, for the murder scene of Glazer. Larry Joshua himself, uh, or pushed himself upward on two boards being carried by grips to make it appear that Cropsey raises him off the ground with the gardening shears. And let me tell you, got me, tricked me. I was like, wow, this man has some strength. I would also like to just say as well that this is one of the real big major incidents, and this happens several times in this movie, where I have no idea of how geography or physics works in this movie because he sort of bends down to like look under the blanket and apparently Cropsey was hiding under the blanket with Sally and he didn't notice but then suddenly he pulls the blanket and then all of a sudden just like the shears are going into him and a fully grown man just materializes out of nowhere uh, <laughs> to kind of like lift him. And I mean, again, a man strong enough to lift a dude up by garden shears. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, it, we really get into this when the climax happens, but uh, Cropsey appears to be able to um, disintegrate and metamorphosize metamorphosis <laughs> himself in any kind of location that he wants mm-hmm. at any given point. You know, okay. So just, just from the scene itself though, I as much as I love the River Raft massacre because that scene is insane and just wild, but like I don't know, I have such an appreciation for the scene, just the way it's shot. Because what you do is you get like a POV of like the hedge clippers going into his neck, then he gets raised up and then just ran back. But the scene lasts like a solid 10 seconds of him like gasping for air, blood's pouring out. And he's getting like slammed against a tree, but he's lifted off the ground. Yeah. And it's just really fucking cool how they achieve that. Like it is just a very cool scene. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in, in another film. Like it's just different. And what I love about like this era, like the very, very early era of the um, of the 80s slashers is it's before um, the censor boards really come in and the MPAA and they start just like hacking the shit out of stuff. Mm. So they still were getting away with doing some like really good gory stuff. So it's like if you watch this, you watch the other like Tom Savini um, one from this era that of the, the Prowler. It's like you just get some really, really gnarly stuff in there that like by the time you get to the later Friday the 13th, um, they are just cutting everything like yeah. they have it in for this genre and it just like and everything's just getting lost. But you're still getting away with doing some really, really prime stuff at this point. I agree. Now, Alfred runs back to find Todd to break the bad news that, uh, yeah, uh, people are being massacred now. Todd thinks Alfred's playing a joke, but goes off to see the bodies with him. The two are attacked shortly thereafter, and Todd takes a blow to the head, incapacitating him. Alfred runs off on his own and is chased down by Cropsey. We cut back to the rest of the group as they see the raft making its way to shore. One of the girls swims off to get the raft, and they find the mutilated corpses from those from before. I really love the way this scene is shot too. Like the the anticipation and the tense yeah. uh, nature of like, you know what she's about to find. And just, I, I thought this was a really cool, like it was the way it was done was really, really neat. I, I really like, yeah, I like the attention to set pieces here. It's like, I think um, the director who I think had only done documentaries prior to this. Rock and um, roll videos. What, 
but you can you can tell he's watched Hitchcock. He's studied yeah. you know how to like build a sequence, build tension, and I think it's really really interesting and stylish in a way that yeah. so many films of this like it's like I love a lot of the films from this era, but they just don't put that much work into really building a mood, building a tension like this one does. And I think that's actually why it's got such a good Rotten Tomatoes score, why it's still got like a pretty good reputation. I think it's one of the ones that everyone's kind of like, oh, this is a cut above a lot yeah. of the other stuff. And it, I think it's very interesting too. Like there's the moment though, like she, so they intercut the scene. So you've got the camp counselor, she's swimming out to the raft. And it keeps cutting back and forth from her swimming and Alfred like running through the woods, like being chased from Cropsey. And as the scene continues to play out, like it is just super intense. Like, you know what's going to happen. You know when she gets that raft, what's going to happen. And what ends up happening is she reaches up. It's like, guys, stop playing a joke. And then she pulls a, a dismembered arm off of it onto her. But not only does that happen, but it also, and I don't know how they pulled this off, but I thought it was really fucking cool. It squirts blood all over her. And it was like, this, like that's just so, oh man. Like that scene was like, this is, this is like the, the batshit crazy horror that we got in the early 80s that we well, did like, for a while. But it's like, I like the idea. I like one of the things I like is that the film too, it understands how to use an image in an evocative way. So it's like actually going back to the, the raft thing, which you didn't bring up in when we talked about the raft was that it ends on this incredibly potent image of like the dead, the arm hanging off the side and like the mm. single line of blood like going down it and then the fade to the solid red color. It's almost like something yeah, cool. to me, like that almost feels more like something I'd expect out of a giallo or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's like it's a it's a it's a thing I love so much that I actually ripped it off and ripped it off in a, a horror script that I'm hoping to, you know, shoot at some point uh, if I ever get to the point where people give me that much money. Look, um, hey, if you ever need to kill anybody on screen, I will fly out to London and you can just lock I mean, this head Ideally, right if I can, I would love to shoot this in New Mexico because you know, I'm, I'm the, you know, obviously I live in London. I have an American accent. Um, it's partly because I grew up in New Mexico. But uh, so I probably wouldn't even be as long a trip for you. I mean, I could probably make that in a car ride in about 18 hours. Well, we could figure, we'll know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. out. We'll figure we'll it out. out. <laughs> Todd reunites with the group while Alfred is still fleeing from the killer. Todd grabs an ax and goes running off to find Alfred while the rest of the remaining group take the raft and try to flee. Alfred finds an abandoned mine shaft in which he retreats into for hiding. The group make it back to camp and Todd's girlfriend and the camp supervisor head back in an actual boat and try to rescue Todd and Alfred. Now, a little quick piece of trivia here. They actually were going to shoot the scene. So the, the abandoned mine shaft actually was not something that they were planning on doing. Like that was impromptu at the end. The reason being was because they had found this really cool cave, but it was so full of bats that they were like, yeah, we can't shoot this here. So they found a second cave and we're like, okay, cool. We'll shoot the sequence in here. They come back the next day and the cave had caved in. <laughs> so they were like, okay, fuck it. We can't shoot it here. Like this isn't going to work. Yeah. So they then somehow stumble across an abandoned mine shaft or like, yes, this will yeah. work. I, yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, that yet another one of the movies we've covered here. Uh, the climactic sequence is in a mine shaft, just like mm. My Bloody Valentine. Such a good See, movie. So that's an interesting one too, because I would say like, 
My Bloody Valentine and The Burning are probably up there as like my two. It's like they're definitely top five non-franchise horror uh, movies. Like obviously, I know there's like remakes, but you know, it's like it's yeah. it's like because I I have a I have a list of my favorite slasher films on my letterbox because obviously you know I'm. Yeah, I'm a person to. who does things like that, um, and yeah, and I was just I was just reviewing it, and I've got uh, I've got the burning at number nine overall. Nice, nice. Alfred is apprehended by the killer, and after being tied up, is pinned to the wall with a pair of hedge clippers. Honestly, at this point in the film, I'm like, yeah, hedge clippers are a very versatile tool to have. I think they in any are. arsenal, it's kind of amazing that we haven't had more hedge clipper killers. Really, yeah. Because I mean, Jason kills. Um, I think in five, Jason kills uh, the woman with the huge tits um, with hedge clippers to the eyes, and then like. Oh yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's Ooh, the only other yeah. one I can think of where somebody kills somebody with hedge clippers. It's probably a listener who's just kind of like, "What about this one?" But uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. that's the one I can think of at the moment. Todd hears Alfred scream and runs to the mine shaft. After being almost crushed to death by a loose mine cart, he sees the dead body of Karen, the counselor who is skinny dipping. Which, I want to add in another little sneak peek at what happened in this movie. That scene wasn't shot. They actually had shot it separately, just a scene of her like dead body. And then cut it back in after in post hmm. to be like, yeah, we just needed a little extra context here. And just threw that in like that was not planned. Like no one knew about that until the movie was released. Man, this whole sequence, I'm not going to lie, starts to feel like you're in some kind of weird dream. Oh, yeah, like, it does. It really it. does. I A mean, nightmare. I swear, like at one point, Alex just turns to me and she's like, are they just like, did the movie start again? Did it start like repeating itself? Did it jump backwards? Like, it's just because it just feels because it has that whole thing where it's like we have the dream, the, the, the thing where he starts like flashing back to, you know, and you, you realize that Todd was the one of the kids and. And then um, he's got the, the flames are coming and then it just stops and it feels like the, it just starts again. And I was like, oh, is it doing a thing where it's like repeating itself and he's trapped in this endless loop of something? And it's like, no, the movies, I don't know if it's just trying to pad itself out or what it's doing. but it's It gets weird. And I'm like, yeah. where did Cropsy go? Is he just like taking five for like five he's minutes? He's got a smoke break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of Cropsy, out he pops wielding a motherfucking blowtorch boom fucking awesome like oh man that scene because you know the whole like he gets burned to death so it's such a great moment when he comes out like wielding a blowtorch and you're like yes this is dope well i just i just love the fact that he's like he's like he's he's in he's got his shears in alfred you know we're kind of hoping maybe this is the end of alfred he's finally going to get what's coming to him um, and then he's just kind of like, well, I can't use my shears cause they're busy right now. So you know what? I'm going to double down. I'm going to take it up another level. Going to take it up a notch. I'm going to get thematic on your ass and I'm going to get some motherfucking fire. I'm going to mm-hmm. burn your asses. Just like you burn my ass. Loved it. Incredible. Now, now, like you said, through a flashback, Todd puts together the pieces and realizes that Cropsey is indeed still alive and indeed did still come back for revenge. Todd finds Alfred still alive, just stuck to the wall like a pin the tail in the docky game. Which is so disappointing. You really just kind of hoped you were going to find Alfred dead. Yeah. yeah. In my head cannon, he's dead. He's, he's dead. Before he can save him, Cropsy reappears. Todd fights him off with his axe. 
Before Cropsey can turn Todd into a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Alfred frees himself and uses the hedge clippers to stab Cropsey in the back. As the two attempt to escape the mine shaft, Cropsey jumps up behind them. Todd gives him a good old whack into the noggin, and then Alfred sets his body on fire with the flamethrower. Circular, Cayman. Circular. Circular. Uh, last piece of trivia uh, for the plot of the movie, the swinging of the axe, the hand we see, is actually the hand of Tom Savini. Oh, nice. It's, it's like how, like, in Friday the 13th, uh, isn't it like Tom Savini's hands that are like uh, Pamela Voorhees' hands when her head mm-hmm. gets chopped off? Yeah. Man likes his hands being in movies. Well, that's one of the things I always loved about Friday the 13th is you see Pamela Voorhees' head get chopped and you see these hairy-ass knuckles just <laughs> like, oh, no, my head. We cut to a different campfire where another group of kids are telling the same ghost story about Cropsey and how he still remains haunting the woods. Roll motherfucking credits, baby! Boom. I liked I liked that. I liked the... Yeah. That now this has just become a legend. That yeah, this is just a, cool a scary moment. tale. Yeah. Such a cool moment. Some last minute trivia before we go into final thoughts. Um, this so apparently this movie is fairly unique for a slasher movie in the sense that most of the women who are killed didn't have sex prior to their deaths. In fact, they strongly refused to be seduced into having sex in the context of the film. Furthermore, the characters who take on uh, and survive the killer is a man with a violent past rather than the standard final girl who's usually innocent, helpless, and morally upright, which I thought was interesting. And then we we covered this toward the beginning, uh, film debut for Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens, and Holly Hunter, which is just mind-boggling that this was how all of them got their debut. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode and to our final thoughts. As always, we will go through and we ask the question, save it or can it? Do we save this film or do we can this film? I'll start with you, Patrick, like I always do. Mm. As someone who is not as prone to horror as as I am or as Kira is, do you save it or do you can it? So I was more on the fence last night after watching it, but I this conversation has pushed me very far in the direction of saving it. Um, this... Not that I didn't dislike the movie at all. I just kind of like what I mentioned earlier, which Kira, you had mentioned that's kind of a staple of slashers. Like it was a bit boring for me for a while. Um, but ultimately I feel like the artistry and how creative a lot of this movie is for me really highlights how cool this genre can be. Even though I'm not usually a fan of it, I really did end up liking this movie. So this is a, a clear save for me. Now I feel this is a silly question to ask you here, but for the sake of the episode and the format that we use, save it or can it? See, here's the thing, right, with slasher films, all right? And it's, it's, it's a weird thing to be a fan of in many ways because I would say, like, the majority of slasher films are, you know, in every respect, bad movies. But it's, it's that kind of thing of, like, I feel like my defense of slasher films a lot of times is, like, yeah, about 70% of it is borderline unwatchable, but you know, there's a good 15 minutes in there. If yeah. you can like get through all of the bad stuff, just enjoy that 15 minutes. And I would say that there's a lot more than a good 15 minutes in this. So that's kind of like my excuse is this is high-end slashers because it's like it's got at least a good 30 to 40 minutes in it. And I will say this is this is number nine 
on my all slasher list. And that includes like, you know, like Scream, Candy, What's number one? like the big ones. Huh? What's number one? All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you what. I'm going to go. I'm going to tell you all the, the top 10. It Perfect. is. It goes Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors at number okay. 10. Number nine is The Burning. Number eight is Child's Play 2. Number seven, You're Next. Number six, Tenebrae. Number five, High Tension, or as we in the UK call it, Switchblade Romance. Um, number four, title. My Bloody Valentine. Number three, the original Black Christmas, though I will say I am also a fan of the 2006 remake. Um, number two, the original Scream. And number one, Candyman. Nice. Fuck yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, that rounds down to me. And if you can't tell, yeah, I'm fucking saving this movie. It is. I, I put this in the probably if I had to rank mine out, I would probably put this in my top five of slasher films. Um, probably number one for me is uh, Friday the 13th 3D. I just have like that's just such that's a nostalgic a, that's a bold film. move, man. It's 3D. just a. That was like one of my first slasher films. That I, mean, I, really I can, got I can get that from the sentimental value, but it's yeah. just like, I mean, I yeah. get that Jason gets his mask, but it's also just like, it's still just like there's something about Jason is just not quite right in that movie. He's, just, oh, he's like, man. you can tell he's played by a lumbering middle-aged man. It just doesn't feel right. <laughs> I just, I don't know. And like you said, it, I'm very sentimental about it, uh, but I do love that one. But no, I mean, I think the burning, like if you're looking at for a good slasher, that builds out its characters, builds up a very good feeling of suspense throughout the film and just is something that just feels unique because I think the burning is such a unique film because it is very art house and it's not something you, you see often in the slasher genre. And so like, I, I love this movie. I think this movie is incredible. It's one of those where like, I would recommend it to anyone who's like, Hey, do you have like a slasher film that you write like that you think would be good? Like I would start probably start them off with this one. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's a really good gateway one. Cause I think yeah. especially too, like one of the things is that people often don't engage with the non-franchise ones. They watch nightmare mm -hmm. on Elm street. They watch Friday the 13th. They watch like the, the, you know, a lot of like, or, you know, they watch scream and they've never actually watched like an actual slasher movie. They yeah. just watch like the scream and then the meta ones that came after scream. But I think it's like, it's really interesting when you go back to this era of what I always think of as the earnest slashers, the slashers before they kind of start to become self-aware. And I think like, that's it. It's like, I think that if you are going to like give someone a non-franchise slasher to me, it's this or black Christmas or my bloody Valentine. Absolutely. So I couldn't say it any better than that. Now I was reading closer to the end. I want to open up the floor for Kier. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, you heard us talk. You heard me talk with Kier. You heard me talk with Alex about their upcoming film, Kill Your Lover. Now, I'm opening up the floor to Kier. Tell us where we can find more information about Kill Your Lover. Tell us how we can help support you guys and help get that film off the ground. Um, well, if you uh, go to uh, Greenlit, which is um, the uh, crowdfunding platform that we're using um then type in kill your lover or even if you sort of like google kill your lover and greenlit you'll like come across it um you can follow me on instagram my name is spelled k-e-i-r-s-i-e-w-e-r-t it is not an easy name i know um but like you'll see me constantly posting about it you'll see the that in the info uh also if you want to check out like 
you get some context of like past work, you can go on YouTube, check out my short film, Wretch, which is um, on Alter. Um, currently, we have, we'll have another short film that'll be coming out in September on Alter called Do Not Resuscitate um, about uh, a couple of paramedics who answer a call and find that a body is not as dead as it had initially seemed. And then uh, my uh, my wife and partner, her uh, her newest short sucker, is going to be playing at a number of festivals. Like we've announced Scream Fest in LA. So if you're in LA, you know it'll be part of the shorts program there. Um, but um, but yeah, no. So I mean, that's kind of like that's a rundown on us where you can check out our stuff. Um, but yeah, um, follow me on Instagram. Feel free to hit me up and talk about horror movies. I as you can tell, love to talk about horror movies and yeah, come come support the film. It's a gnarly body horror. We describe it as Blue Valentine meets the fly, um, you know, about a, a relationship that goes sickeningly wrong. Um, and yeah, no, it's going to be really cool. We're starting shooting in August. I love it. I will be including a link in the description. So if you click on that button in the description on whatever podcast player that you're using, you can find a link to the Greenlit campaign there. I'll also include a link to Wretch. That is one of my personal favorite short films that's ever been made. So you should definitely watch it because you all think that I have incredible taste. I know that. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this show, please rate, review, share the hell out of it with your friends, loved ones, and worst of enemies. Honestly, word of mouth is key here, and we aren't beggars. Also, fuck Keith. If you're interested in video games, check out our sister podcast, the Spotlight Games Podcast, and all your favorite streaming services. We also have a YouTube channel, so don't be a heathen and watch us banter about video games there as well. We're also streaming live on Twitch every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, so come and check it out. In the meantime, you can follow me at Kid Kamen. Patrick, where can they follow you? Uh, at Patrick Schwag on Twitter. And you can also follow our sister podcast at Spot Games Pod on Twitter and Spotlight Games Podcast on Instagram. If you want to be part of the show, whether it be a guest host or having a movie recommendation, you can reach us at SaveTrashCinema at gmail.com or SaveTrashCinema on all socials. Remember, fight big box office. Save Trash Cinema. Oh, God bless her mom and dad. You guys are a real bunch of wimps, you know that? Looking at girly magazines. You guys make me sick. You gotta try the real thing sometimes, man. Let me tell you that. Ooh, we make you sick, do we, huh, Glazer? Well, then you won't mind paying a new market price for a bag of rubbers. Five bucks. <laughs>